Hi, everyone. So it's my extreme pleasure to welcome Dr. Sana Hyder, our PGY3 internal medicine resident who's going to be going into cardiology. Um, she's going to talk to us today about uh, NSTEMI and unstable angina. Uh, Sana, take it away. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Khalid, for that introduction. And uh, welcome to all the interns. I hope you all are doing well. It's week two of intern year. Exciting times. So we have this amazing summer survival schedule over here with uh, the bread and butter cases of internal medicine. And today we're going to be talking about NSTEMI. I'm sure you guys in your one week have definitely come across some NSTEMI case. So can anyone tell me what NSTEMI is and just whatever you know about NSTEMI before we start talking? That's all right. This is this is just a casual discussion. I'm just sharing my knowledge with you. Feel free to ask questions, stop me or interrupt me. Um, all right. So NSTEMI is basically non-ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. And um, the EKG changes that you would expect in NSTEMI would be something like ST segment depression or T wave inversions, something that would make you look at the EKG again. So in the next slide, I have that over here. So this is a normal EKG, and here you can see what the ST segment looks like normally. This is the isoelectric line. And uh, this is a very obvious STEMI uh, that you can see over here. I believe you guys already had your STEMI um, discussion uh, on Friday, I believe. So now this is like the EKG that you would expect to see in an NSTEMI. You'll see an ST segment depression, or you'll see T wave inversions. Again, having these changes in contiguous leads makes more sense. Um, isolated changes would probably not mean too much, but again, these things should be given importance. So what are the different types of NSTEMI? Have you guys heard of type one, type two? Three, four, five, by any chance. I never heard of it until I joined Antonia. Any thoughts, anyone? All right. So, type one NSTEMI is what we're going to be talking about extensively today, which is basically related to ACS. Um, in this kind of NSTEMI, you're going to have like a spontaneous plaque rupture plaque ulceration, thrombosis, which causes the occlusion of the coronary artery, which supplies the heart. And uh, there's an imbalance between the demand and the supply. Type 2 NSTEMI is, again, something that you're going to see in the hospitals. Um, it's not related to the coronary artery disease, but it can be something where there's an imbalance between the demand and the supply. That can be like tachyarrhythmias, bradyarrhythmias, coronary artery spasm, sometimes coronary embolism. So that's type 2 NSTEMI. Type 3 NSTEMI is related to sudden cardiac death. Um, a lot of times, like, the labs are either not drawn or the biomarkers are not elevated before the death of the individual. So sudden cardiac death, after the death, you happen to see that the biomarkers are elevated. That's type 3 NSTEMI. Type 4 would be related to coronary angiography, like percutaneous coronary intervention. You have different types in that. You've got type A and type B. Type A has got like a lot of like uh, criteria in order to define it. Type B is related, related to stent thrombosis. And you've got type 5 NSTEMI, which is related to a cabbage. 
Again, you have to be familiar with these two other terms called acute myocardial injury and chronic myocardial injury. So basically, if your bi uh, biomarkers, that's the troponin, is elevated more than 99 percentile um, in the absence of ischemia, it's called acute myocardial injury. And if it's chronically elevated in the absence of ischemia, it's called chronic myocardial injury. This is different from myocardial ischemia. Now, the three main things which acute coronary syndrome consists of would be STEMI, NSTEMI, and unstable angina. So, STEMI, you already know uh, what STEMI is. You're going to see an ST segment elevation on the EKG. There's going to be like necrosis of the uh, myocardial muscle leading to enzyme leakage. In NSTEMI, you're not going to see an ST segment elevation. You're rather going to see a depression or you're going to see T wave inversions. But you're also going to have infarction of the myocardium. So you're going to have enzyme leakage. Unstable angina, on the other hand, can often be confused with NSTEMI. So unstable angina may or may not have EKG changes. So it's basically characterized by persistent chest pain, which is happening at rest, may or may not have EKG changes. Those EKG changes, if they're present, might even be transient. And they don't have any uh, troponin leakage. Because if there is a troponin leakage, that signifies like myocardial ischemia, which would lead us to think of NSTEMI. But in unstable angina, there's no troponin leakage. Irrespective of what it is, any changes in the ST segment and uh, T wave itself, like, you know, uh, tells us that the patient is at a higher risk for developing um, coronary syndrome. So now we're going to like uh, briefly discuss the pathophysiology. I'm sure all of you guys remember this from your step one. It's like hidden somewhere in your memory. We'll just like revise this. Um, so stable angina. So stable angina, there's a person who's got like the risk factors for coronary artery disease. He seems to be fine at rest and then he just decides to go on a treadmill and starts running on the treadmill. And then his oxygen demand increases, but his supply is low. Uh, that's because he's got like a li lipid-rich plaque over here, which is causing, you know, it's it's kind of obstructing the coronary flow over here, and it's inhibiting the ability of the blood vessel to dilate when the demand is high. So that's when they start experiencing the chest pain. And then they rest, and the chest pain disappears. The EKG looks fine. It looks like a normal EKG. And the second thing that we're going to talk about is the unstable angina. In unstable angina, you have this lipid-rich plaque, and which becomes unstable. It ruptures. There is a clot which is formed around the plaque, and now that's partially obstructing. You still see that there is some blood which is flowing through the blood vessel, so it's a partial obstruction. Um, but in this, there's pain even at rest, and it may or may not have EKG changes. There's no ischemia, so the blood is able to flow, and uh, the heart muscle hasn't necrosed. In NSTEMI, this partial obstruction increases further and it doesn't allow enough blood to pass through uh, the vessel, leading to an infarction. And this infarction will lead to certain EKG changes that you can see here. You can see a T wave inversion over here. You can see an ST segment depression over here. And this, is, this causes the infarction of the subendocardial uh, muscle over here. And then you have the STEMI, which is a complete occlusion and which has very obvious and prominent ST segment elevations over here, and it also causes the infarction. Any questions about this, guys? All right, so let's now talk about the diagnosis. So now you have a patient who's coming in with the typical anginal symptoms, substernal chest pain, going on for more than 20 minutes. 
And you now know that this seems like this chest pain is cardiac in origin. So you're going to think about the acute coronary syndrome. You're going to get an EKG for him. If the EKG shows an ST segment elevation, you know that this is a STEMI. You're going to call up the cath lab. The cath lab is going to take the patient immediately and do a, do a PCI for him. If there's no ST segment elevation, that's when you're going to wait and see what happens to your troponin. And you see that your troponin is not elevated. So that makes you think this is unstable angina. If your troponin is elevated, you're going to think along the lines of NSTEMI. And then you're going to look at the Q waves. That is, if you have a Q wave, which is basically a prominent Q wave, one box deep, one box wide. And that's going to make you think of Q wave MI or non-Q wave MI. Now we're going to talk about the risk stratification. Uh, have you guys heard of the TIMI score or the GRACE score? I had heard of the TIMI score, but I had never heard of the GRACE score before I joined uh, Internia. So the TIMI score and the GRACE score are basically tools which help us decide whether somebody needs to get go in for an urgent or an emergent um, uh, diagnostic angiogram versus whether we can delay it and take the patient a little later. So the TIMI score has seven variables and there's one point assigned for every variable. Um, if the age is more than 65 years, if they have more than three traditional risk factors for coronary artery disease, if they have documented coronary artery disease from a prior angiogram which shows more than 50% stenosis, if they have significant ST segment deviation on the EKG, if they've had two or more anginal episodes in the last 24 hours, if they've taken aspirin in the last week, or if they have elevated enzymes. So there's one point given for each variable over here, and then you're gonna calculate the score. And based on the score, you're gonna classify them as being low risk, intermediate risk, or high risk. The reason I'm stressing on this is because the TIMI score actually helps you decide. A lot of times it helps you decide whether you should call the cardiology fellow immediately and let him know about what's going on. The other score that we I mentioned was the GRACE score. The GRACE score, again, is a little complex. It takes many different characteristics into consideration. You have the physical examination, you have the vitals, like you have the heart rate, you've got the blood pressure, you've got EKG changes, and you also have the biomarkers. All these things are taken into consideration. The GRACE score is calculated, and then it's plotted on a normogram, and uh, the mortality of the patient is decided based on that. So that was about the diagnosis and the risk stratification. Now we're going to talk about the medications. Before we start talking about this, do you guys have any questions from what we just discussed? All right. So the medications are very important, and um, you'll come across this on a day-to-day -day basis throughout your internia. Um, what are the broad? These are the broad category of medications that we are going to be using for NSTEMI. The first one is going to be the antiplatelet medication. Uh, dual antiplatelet is what we're going to be using for acute coronary syndrome. One of them is going to be aspirin, and the other one is usually a P2Y12 inhibitor medication, which is either clopidogrel or it's ticagrelor or prasugrel. Typically, we don't use prasugrel that often. We use clopidogrel and ticagrelor. Clopidogrel, the brand name is Plavix, and Tyca, the brand name is Brillinta. The second class of drugs is the anticoagulation, which we're going to do with a heparin drip, or you can even do it with an oxaparin. Uh, then we've got the nitrates. 
again, antianginal, beta blocker, antianginal reduces the heart rate, reduces the contractility, reduces the imbalance between the demand and the supply. Then you've got the high dose statins. So we're gonna talk in detail about these medications in the coming slides. So now this is an algorithm. This is very useful. It gives you an idea about how um, NSTEMI should be managed. So the medications that we spoke about essentially are gonna be given to all the, all the patients who have NSTEMI, whether they are low risk or whether they are high risk. Aspirin is gonna be given, beta blocker is gonna be given, nitrates are gonna be given, statin is also gonna be given. Now, the TIMI score and the GRAY score play a role over here in the risk stratification. So the patients are going to be broadly divided into three categories, high risk, intermediate risk, and low risk, essentially based on their scores. So with a high TIMI score and high GRAY score, they're gonna be high risk. And high risk tells us that early invasive therapy for them in the first 24 hours has got beneficial effects. It uh, improves the endpoint in terms of the mortality, in terms of recurrent MIs, as well as complications that they can have because of the MI. The intermediate risk is for delayed invasive strategy. That is, you can think about doing the diagnostic coronary angiogram from 25 to 72 hours, depending upon uh, how they look. The low risk group is gonna be managed by the ischemia guided strategy. So the ischemia guided strategy is basically very different from the invasive strategy. In the ischemia strategy, you're gonna look at how they uh, appear in terms of their symptoms and you're gonna be doing a stress test for them before they get discharged from the hospital. So for the low risk groups, they undergo stress testing and based on the results of the stress test, it's decided whether the angiogram is going to be done in-house versus outpatient. So if the stress test results are abnormal or if they develop recurrent chest pain, that tells you that these individuals, although they fall in the low risk category, are still at a higher risk of getting a recurrent MI. So it would be beneficial for us to go ahead with a coronary angiogram while they are in the hospital. If the stress test is normal, or if it's a low risk stress test and there's no recurrent chest pain at all, then the patient can be discharged and they can follow up outpatient with the cardiologist and then they can do like an elective angiogram for them. Now we're gonna be talking about the medications. The so uh, I'm just going to pause you for a second here. There's a question in the in the chat box about um, when will you use Timmy versus Heart Score. I don't know if you wanted to discuss it a little bit, and I can chime in as well. So the Heart Score is mostly used in the ED. So when a patient is coming in with chest pain, and you're not sure whether this chest pain is cardiac in nature versus um, other causes of chest pain, that's when you're going to use the heart score and you're going to decide about um, whether this is cardiac and whether you need to get cardiology people on board and start the cardiac workup. The TIMI score, on the other hand, is to decide about the management. You already know that the chest pain is cardiac in nature, it's NSTEMI, and it's basically ACS. The TIMI score tells you whether you need to act upon this right away and take the patient to the cath lab or whether you can wait and watch and decide whether you want to take them a little later during the hospitalization or maybe just do it after they uh, get discharged from the hospital. Yes, yeah, so, so right, like I think, uh, like you said, sounded beautiful. Like it's, it's the heart score was typically originated from studies in the ED 
uh, where they had patients coming in with chest pain and that the outcomes were looking at major adverse cardiac events and, and or MACE, M-A-C-E, you'll see that acronym a lot, over the period of six weeks. Um, and uh, based on that, they, they uh, put in all of these variables and you might find it an MD calc as well and use it when you're admitting those patients. Um, and the uh, TME score on the other, other hand was calculated to do mortality. Um, and again, uh, be very careful. There are two TME scores. There's one for STEMI, there's one for NSTEMI and you use the one for NSTEMI when you're doing that. And it helps you a, a little bit with um, uh, the decision-making capacity as we're talking about this Sana has uh, very beautifully outlined. Um, hard score, I believe, outperformed the, the TME score when it comes to low risk. Uh, uh basically if you don't want to miss anything at all if you don't want to miss a cardiac event then then heart score is very useful in these situations as well um but but both are valid uh to to calculate and to evaluate in patients coming in with chest pain and you're concerned about NSTEMI. thanks Khalid. um any other questions or should we go ahead I don't see any in the chat, go ahead. All right. So now we're gonna be talking about the antiplatelet medications. The first one being the aspirin. So once the patient comes into the ED, once the ED physician recognizes that this chest pain could be cardiac in nature, they immediately load the patient. You'll see that you won't have to give the loading dose of aspirin, they would have already received it in the ED by the time they come to you. So the loading dose of aspirin is 325 milligrams. And following that, you're going to use the maintenance dose of aspirin, which is going to be 81 milligrams every day. Once we think that this is ACS and we're medically managing this ACS or even managing it with invasive um, therapies, uh, ACS would need dual antiplatelet therapy. Now, the second agent is usually a P2, P2Y12 inhibitor. Um, the mechanism of P2Y inhibitors is Going back to step one, related to your platelets, it inhibits like the aggregation of the platelets. The most commonly used medication is clopidogrel. Uh, brand name is Plavix. Loading dose of that would be 300 milligrams, and the maintenance dose of that would be 75 milligrams daily. The newer medication is Brilinta, which is Ticagrelor, and it's gaining a lot of uh, popularity now. Brilinta, a lot of cardiologists in Hartford Hospital, even in Yukon, would prefer to uh, use Brilinta instead of Plavix because of its faster uh, onset of action, the fact that it does not require the first pass hepatic metabolism. And um, it's, it's way better when compared to Plavix, but it's a little more expensive. So the loading dose of that would be 180 milligrams, and the maintenance dose of that would be 90 milligrams twice every day. Um, Prasugrel is the other medication. Prasugrel is used when, as the second antiplatelet agent, if the patient undergoes PCI. It is not uh, used when the patient is being medically managed. Uh, reasons being that it's not, it, it doesn't have any superiority when compared to uh, Plavix or Brilinta and has got a higher risk of bleeding. Um, there are certain IV medications as well, the glycoprotein 2B3A inhibitors, that is eptifibatide and tirofiban. I've seen them being used, but very, very rarely. Um, they're usually used if the patient is at very, very high risk for um, 
uh, clot propagation or there was like some distal embolization of the clot that they saw during the PCI. Um, there's a higher risk of bleeding with these medications and they're not, in, they're not that popular anymore. Uh, so dual antiplatelet therapy is going to be used for a period of one year. Beyond one year, there is a higher risk of bleeding. But again, we do see patients uh, on dual antiplatelet beyond one year, especially if they've got higher risk factors like low EF or they've got saphenous vein graft stenting uh, or if they have diabetes. But again, the risks versus benefits has to be uh, discussed with the patient. So you guys might have heard of aspirin desensitization. This is actually done in the CCU. At least at some point when you're rotating in the CCU, you will come across patients who undergo this. Um, aspirin, when the patient has a stent and they need dual antiplatelet, and one of them has to be aspirin and they're allergic to aspirin, we're going to do the desensitization. They usually get pre-medicated 12 hours prior to the aspirin and then the desensitization process starts in the CCU where they're gradually given uh, increasing doses of aspirin every 5 to 10 minutes and they're being very closely monitored in the ICU. Anticoagulation. So IV heparin is the preferred anticoagulant. Anoxaparin is also equally effective, but again, it's renally cleared. So we have to be careful if somebody has renal dysfunction, then we need to either adjust the medication or just switch to IV heparin and fractionated heparin. The duration um, of keeping somebody on the anticoagulant is until they go for the PCI or for the cabbage. So a lot of times when you're in the unit, the nurses will ask you about when you know you should hold the heparin. The heparin should not be held. It has to go on until the patient is being rolled to the cath lab or to the OR. Uh, in patients who are being medically treated, anticoagulation is recommended for at least 48 hours and uh, is usually continued until they get discharged from the hospital. The other classes of drugs, the anti-anginal medications. So we'll talk about the nitrates first. So the nitrate, the subling, the nitrate has got two forms which we commonly use. You've got sublingual nitrate and then you've got IV nitroglycerine. So the sublingual nitrate is a 0.4 milligram tablet uh, which we give for chest pain. Uh, it can be given every five minutes to a maximum of three doses. Again, we have to remember that it can lower your blood pressure. And in certain situations, especially if somebody has an inferior wall MI, then we have to be careful with the use of nitrates. IV uh, nitroglycerin is useful if somebody is hypertensive when they present to us. If someone has been taking nitrate over a longer period of time, they would require higher doses of nitrate because typically this drug, uh, the body develops tolerance to the nitrates. And um, if somebody has been taking sildenafil, Viagra in the last 24 to 48 hours, then nitrates are contraindicated because of hypotension. Beta blockers is the other class of drugs. So the whole idea behind using the beta blocker is that it's going to reduce your sympathetic drive. It's going to reduce your heart rate. It's going to reduce the force of contraction. In turn, it's going to basically reduce the demand that the heart has for oxygen. So the imbalance between the demand and the supply also comes down. Uh, it's good to use the beta blocker within 24 hours of presentation because it can prevent the ventricular arrhythmias and also decreases the long-term mortality. Again, if somebody is coming in with florid heart failure or is in shock, 
then beta blocker is contraindicated. If they are bradycardic, then obviously beta blocker is going to be contraindicated. If they've got heart blocks or if the PR interval is more than 240 milliseconds. So although these medications are like given to all the patients, we still have to keep in mind that there are certain contraindications and uh, we have to be cognizant of those. Um, then you've got you've got calcium channel blockers and uh, they usually, I mean, if somebody is refractory to the beta blockers and to the nitrates, that's when the calcium channel blockers come in or if they're intolerant to them, they come in. Again, calcium channel blockers have the same set of contraindications that you have for the beta blockers. Um, if somebody is bradycardic, is in shock, you're not gonna give them the calcium channel blocker. So that was it. So we spoke about what NSTEMI is, what the EKG changes are, different types of NSTEMI, how to diagnose NSTEMI, how to stratify a patient who comes in with NSTEMI and how to manage NSTEMI in terms of medications, as well as in terms of sending them to the cat lab. So that's it guys, any questions? Feel free to unmute yourself and ask any questions you guys. I can probably share with you some of the common pitfalls or mistakes that happen. Um, so, and Sana can also chime in and, and tell us as well. So, some of the main mistakes is uh, that uh, people are not placed on dual antiplatelets, um, especially when they come in with with chest pain and, and the EKG confirms like a, a ST segment depression in a territorial lead, uh, territorial fashion, and um, is showing uh, you have positive troponins, diagnosis, and STEMI. Uh, you usually start the aspirin. We're pretty good about that. Again, the full dose. We're pretty good about remembering anticoagulation either with heparin or subcutaneous uh, uh, on fraction, uh, uh, on fraction uh, subcutaneous, uh, sorry, low molecular weight heparin. Um, we sometimes forget about the uh, second antiplatelets. Um, and these are very important and, and uh, shouldn't be forgetting about those. Uh, cardiology uh, should be involved in those uh, patients um, early on as well. To help you with the decision-making capacity, because some patients said there are some nuances um, into whether this patient would be a good candidate for early hospitalization or after 24 hours or after uh, uh, that or before the patient gets discharged outside the hospital. Uh, so don't don't forget that. Uh, obviously, the two main things that are going to save a patient's life: the aspirin, the early interventions, and beta blockers. Remember those as well. Um, it, it's also sometimes we do forget. Um, if the patients, uh, uh, usually like beta blockers, uh, if you're around with the cardiologist, they'll tell you like, if you have a patient that's beating uh, at a heart rate of 110 and you bring them down to 60 gradually, um, you basically have almost half their, their workload, right? Uh, remember the cardiac cycle, uh, where most of the, um, perfusion of the, of the muscles of the heart of the, of the myocardium itself happens within the diastole, not the systole. And as the patient becomes more tachycardic, you're shortening mostly the diastole as well, right? Uh, so you have less time for filling, you have less time for uh, the myocardium to gain all of that vascularization as well. 
So by slowing down the heart rate, you're decreasing the workload of the heart as it's got like the negative chronotropic effects, the ionotropic effects. So while it's contracting, it's not contracting as hard, it's, it's uh, not beating as fast. So the demand is less overall. Um, these are just like the mainstays as well. Uh, don't forget to obviously call your, your residents, your cardiologist, and, and uh, do all of that in consultation with them. Those were great points, Khaled. Like, especially the dual antiplatelet, I, I believe the guidelines, they changed the guidelines because initially they would uh, be okay with a single antiplatelet agent for NSTEMI, and then they updated the guidelines saying that all NSTEMI patients should also be on dual antiplatelet therapy. And uh, they had done this QI project at Hartford Hospital uh, to see if all the patients with NSTEMI were being started on dual antiplatelets. So that's a great point. And as interns, I think um, just going through the orders and seeing if your patients are on these medications and then reaching out to your resident to just let them know would be really useful. And um, yeah. So this is something that you'll come across like on every uh, rotation, every flow rotation, even the ICO rotations, you're going to see a troponin leak. A lot of times, like the troponin leak will not be related to a cardiac cause. It might not be related to the coronary artery being occluded. Like it's going to be a type 2 NSTEMI. Somebody is going to come in with respiratory failure, like COPD exacerbation, and they're still going to have a troponin leak. And that's when you're going to call it a type 2 NSTEMI. Or they're going to be anemic and they're going to have a troponin leak, or they are going to have like uh, atrial fibrillation and they're going to have a troponin leak. So all of this falls under the category of type 2 NSTEMI, which I'm sure you guys have come across um, in your one week on the floors. Any questions, any concerns? Also, just to be clear, when we're talking about the dual antiplatelet, the, the anticoagulation for most of these parts for patients with uh, type 1 is what we're talking about. Not for, for, for some of the demand ischemia, you might see that, the, or type 2 and STEMI, you will find that sometimes uh, um, it depends on the patient's um, risk factors. The, the treatment may vary a little bit, but for the most part, the, the treatment of that is the treatment of the underlying cause. Right, so, so if it's profound anemia or hypotension, you treat that. Um, so if the patient is having uh, underlying sepsis or septic shock, you treat that. Um, basically, you treat the underlying cause that's driving this, this stress reaction from the heart um, or the uh, mismatch or the imbalance between the supply of oxygen and nutrients to the myocardium and the demand uh, on it. Uh, as long as you're treating the underlying cause, you're probably doing uh, what's right and the patient will improve from that. Make sense? So usually like for the type 2 NSTEMIs that we just spoke about, like you're treating the underlying cause. And despite that, if you see uh, somebody's troponin is like jumping massively or they're getting some chest pain. So that's when you should think about getting cardiology on board, especially if there's like a massive jump in the troponin, like somebody's troponin is jumping to eight. It was initially like one, and now it's like jumping and going uh, two to three times higher. That's when you should be like, okay, maybe cardiology should come on board. And you'll see like this, the, the distinction between type one NSTEMI and type two NSTEMI sometimes gets blurred. 
and cardiology will weigh in and they'll be like, oh, this might even be type 1 in STEMI and they might start the patient on a heparin drip. So you will come across these situations as well. But like Khalid mentioned, whatever we spoke about today was basically type 1 in STEMI, the ACS in STEMI. All the medications that we spoke about, the heparin drip that we spoke about, uh, the pathophysiology, everything was related to type 1 ACS and STEMI. Any questions, you guys? All right. Thank you all for your attention. Thank you so much, Sana. That was great. Uh, appreciate it. Um, thank you, Lindsay, for recording. We appreciate it very much and for arranging all of that. All right, you guys have a great day. Thank you, everyone. Have a good day. Have a good day. Bye-bye.